Jewish Latin Princess, episode 76, Yehudit Abrams, creator of Monitor and winner of the WeWork Creator Award. You're listening to Jewish Latin Princess podcast by Yael. Every week, get your dose of inspiration from the world's most uniquely talented Jewish women and from Yael herself. Seeking profound and practical ways to live a joyful, richer Jewish life? Welcome to Jewish Latin Princess Podcast. And now, Jewish lifestyle expert and bilingual blogger at JewishLatinPrincess.com, your host, Yael. Have you ever had a plan and it seems like no matter how hard you try, all doors you try opening shut down on you? Have you been blessed enough to get the opportunity in your lifetime to see how all those setbacks were really for your own good and because God had a greater and better plan stored for you all along? My guest today has been blessed in this way. You're listening to Jewish Latin Princess. I'm Yael Tresh, your host. Welcome to the show. It's Monday, October 15. We're right in the middle of Breast Cancer Awareness Month in America. Hopefully you've had a chance to catch episode 74 with Alana Silver, executive director of Sharsheret, about the incredible support Sharsheret offers women diagnosed with ovarian and breast cancer. And today I'm adding to the topic with the fabulous Yehudit Abrams. Yehudit is the founder and creator of Monitor, the first at home handheld monitor for early detection of breast cancer. And she's pretty much the Jewish wonder woman of the moment. Sorry, Gal Gadot, we love you. We love you here too. Why is Yehudit Abrams the it girl? Because earlier this summer, she won the first prize at the coveted and very competitive WeWork Creator Awards in Jerusalem with her new revolutionary invention. Part of the boys club for pretty much all of her career as a mechanical engineer, as a professional at NASA and in Silicon Valley, Yehudit not only stands out in the medical engineering field for being a woman, but for being an observant Jewish woman. Yep. That's right, Shabbat, kosher, her covering, the whole nine yards. So what was it like to win the award? Yehuda tells us how this moment on stage represented the missing piece of the big puzzle that has been her very active and complex life. We talk about failure very openly. A woman who now seems to be on top of the world tells us how she grappled with failure many times. What is Monitor exactly? What are the shortcomings of the current technology which Monitor is trying to address? We get into the numbers and the technical part with the but just as fascinating, or maybe even more, is her story and her outlook on life. We talk about motherhood, motherhood and creativity and how her time at home taking care of her son during his early years was instrumental in the creation of her revolutionary device. This and so much more with the super awesome Yehudit Abrams. But before we begin, I want to apologize for the sound. There is background noise all the way from Israel. We weren't able to take care of that and control it. But nevertheless, I know you will enjoy this very cool interview with a super cool woman. Here's Yehudit Abrams. Yehudit Abrams, welcome to Jewish Latin Princess. Hi. It is such an honor and a pleasure to finally get to connect with you. I know, we've been wanting to do this for a while. Yeah, you are the creator of Monitor. Oh, how appropriate. We're in October, which is um, Breast Cancer Awareness Month in in, uh, in America, I should say. That's right. That's um, right. 
So you're the creator of this phenomenal device, this handheld monitor for early detection of breast cancer, and the winner of the WeWork Creator Awards. Congratulations on that. So I want us to start with you taking us back a little bit to that incredible night of the awards. You left people stunned with your emotional as well as scientifically sound presentation. And lo and behold, you won the coveted award for $360,000. Describe this incredible experience for listeners a little bit. <laughs> okay. Well, just uh, if you don't mind, I'll just correct you. Yes, it was an emotional speech. I will agree with that. A scientifically sound. Uh, it is not that much that you can actually say in a minute. So I don't know. Oh, it was just that. a minute. It. Oh, that's tough. How do you win in a minute? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, there wasn't much science to present in a minute, um, but I, I did my best, and I guess that was good enough. <laughs> um, uh, and, and also, I want to be very clear that uh, we're a very early company. Um, this this device is very much an idea at this point, and the device, Emirates Hashem, will be available in the next few years. So I, I want to be clear, because a lot of people think that the device is already out there, and that's not the case at all. We're a very early company. And we have some some incredible starts, mind you. I don't want to discount that, but I, I want people to be aware of that. So um, so your, your question was to take you back to that night, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, it was a fantastic night. Uh, it was, um, I, I remember the... A few minutes before I was going to go up on stage, mm -hmm. I got a little paranoid. <laughs> you know, looking out at 5,000 people out on, in, in the audience, um, I got a little scared. And then I decided to focus on the number of them that will get breast cancer. Wow. And that, that calmed me down a lot. And Because it's, you know, 1 in 8, 1 in 12, depending on who you ask, and what statistic you're looking at where, um, of women. And I, I, I realized why I was there. You know, and there's, there, there was no room to be insecure about myself or how I look or because really nothing about me. It's, it's, I'm, I'm there because I, I want to save lives and I'm, I'm there to do Shem's work. And so I, I was thinking about that and then I started reflecting on, you know, this crazy life that I've lived and all that I've done and how there's so much of it that just didn't make sense. And there were so many failures and there were so many things that I ended up doing that I didn't really want to do. Um, but how it all came together and how it, all of those failures and the, the whole path that Hashem put me on culminated that night. And it came together, you know, I, all the, the years of engineering that I did that, you know, I, I, I didn't really intend on doing and wasn't really what I wanted to do. I was just doing an interesting undergrad and, and, um, I, and, and the years of, of medicine and, and the postdoc that I did and ultrasound, all of that came together and, and, and um, it was like a brick to the head. Right. It's <laughs> like, like, okay, maybe this is it. The hand of God in everything. So, so take us back. What were, what, describe that crazy life, quote unquote. That's what you said. And those failures. And you mentioned, yeah. I was not aware that you didn't necessarily want to do engineering. So take us back to that professional journey a little bit. Well, I mean, you know, when you're a kid, you just, you don't really know what you're studying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I know. You, you think, you think it's one thing, you know, you get this romantic perspective of what it is to be an engineer or a doctor. And, and life isn't really like that, you know? It's How you see things on the outside is very different from when you're actually practicing it. And so when you're a student, it's still very romantic. And I, my mom worked for HP for 20 years, so it wasn't that I was completely ignorant. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I got my introduction to Hewlett-Packard uh, one summer, uh, and I, I got this incredible opportunity to create a documentary, if you will, for where the Global Enterprise Planning and Development Group at Hewlett-Packard was going. 
And in that, in that summer, I was required to interview some of the top um, engineers and in, in, in heads of, C, of HP all over the world. Mm-hmm. And so I was exposed to these extraordinary people. And I, after that summer, it, you know, it was very easy for me to say, ah, this is what I want to do. Right. <laughs> you know, and I, I, I still wanted to be a physician, but I thought it'd be a super cool undergrad. And so I went to go t- check out the departments of engineering at um, Oregon State. And because I've, I've always been like very mechanically inclined, I thought mechanical engineering would be fun. And so I went there and um, I think the first introduction that I had, I, I needed to use the bathroom before I was going to meet with like the department. And um, they didn't actually have a women's bathroom. Are you um, they serious? Had, they had... They had a janitorial closet. It was one room with the toilet in there with all the janitor supplies, and that was the women's bathroom. Wait, and so, <laughs> I mean, what year is this, Yehuda? Oh, I don't want to give it away. Oh, um, you don't want to give it away. <laughs> but let's just say it's not prehistoric say, times. <laughs> no, no, this is this is the 1990s. Okay, late 1990s. Okay. okay. And so clearly, you're one of the few women in the department. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was my introduction. And then when I heard that there was only one other woman out of oh, 70 God. in the freshman class, I was like, this is it. This is what I'm doing. Oh. And it actually ended up being another Jewish girl who ended up being like my best friend. Oh, um, very nice. <laughs> and, and we rocked it. You know, we were like some of the, the top students, um, at least in the beginning, uh, in the Department of Engineering. And um, so that was that was the start. But I... I before that, I'd been to a few other universities, including Spring College, and and um, had some serious failures. You know, I, I failed chemistry. Um, <laughs> I did. I failed chemistry. I failed calculus. Really? Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I did. I did. The first time I took it. Um, it was my freshman year. I was in New York City. I spent more time at the Met than I think I did studying. Uh-huh. And. Because <laughs> yeah, I had free tickets. I, I used to go like all the time. It was amazing at YU. I got somebody donated these incredible box seats. And so I took full advantage. Um, so I, I had my share of mistakes. And then when I got in, into Oregon State, I did, I did much better. So that was the beginning of engineering. And it was, it was great. It was fascinating. You know, I went on to work for HP another summer. And then I ended up working at, for Intel in robotics for a year. And then decided to go on to medical school. And at that time, I had, I had accumulated so much undergrad, undergraduate debt because I'd had, I mean, a total of, gosh, I want to say, yeah, about nine years of undergraduate. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, that's a lot I mean, of right there. <laughs> I, I mean, it wasn't just Oregon State. I, I went all over and um, studied all different kinds of things. But I had a lot of debt, and I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go to medical school and get another 250 grand. And so mm-hmm. I, I looked into other options, and I found that I could study in Europe for 9000 a year. Mm-hmm. And live in the middle of Prague, and so that's what I did. I applied, got accepted, and I I moved to Prague. I was there for six years, and um, you moved to w- Prague to go to medical school. I did. Oh wow! I cool. Did. Okay. Yeah. No, it was, it was very cool, and mm-hmm. I I I had an incredible education. I learned a whole bunch of stuff that I would never need, and not two hundred thousand dollars in student loans. <laughs> no, <laughs> and I got to live in the center of Prague, you know, for like four hundred dollars a month, mm-hmm. and uh, and completely live it up and enjoy life. And like I said, it was, it's a different kind of education, but it was certainly sufficient to get me through the board exams. And 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 at this, sorry to interrupt you at this point in medical school, medical school, what is, what is your interest at that point? What do you think you're going to be pursuing in medicine? Um, So I was really interested in international service and every summer during medical school, I would join another medical team to go to another country and, and particularly developing uh, developing nations as well as 
you know, like the, in the Great Smoky Mountains and Appalachia and rural Idaho and all these places. Uh-huh. And, and I, so I was really interested in emergency medicine and uh, international work. And um, when I got time to my senior year, I, I started to notice a real trend. It seemed like all the medical teams that I had joined had very limited access to diagnostics, both in imaging and in labs. And I, and I felt the, how limited was the impact that we were able to leave behind. And so I, I really felt like, excuse me, most of the work was, was really like patchwork medicine. Like we really weren't making any sort of lasting impact. And I, I started thinking about combining my engineering with medicine to create solutions for these communities. And mm-hmm. so with that idea, I applied for this program called Singularity University on the NASA campus and um, ended up, you know, it was just a total whim. I just applied, didn't really think much of it. And ended up getting a $25,000 Google scholarship to attend this program in the Bay Area. And um, and I joined that, I graduated early from medical school and I went straight to the program and spent the next nine weeks on the campus um, getting incredibly empowered and having the chance to sit down with some of the top minds in, mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley, including Larry Page, um, Elon Musk, uh, Peter Diamantes, Kurzweil, and Nobel laureates and scientists. Mm-hmm. So now you're not just getting the science, but also the entrepreneurial um, yeah. training, let's say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, that was kind of my introduction to the startup world because they, they really help prepare you and actually help launch you into a startup at the end of the program. And oh. so that, mm-hmm. But when you so applied was, to the program, you didn't necessarily know that you were going to launch something. Uh, I, I understood that that was part of the intent. Now, that uh-huh. was clear. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That, that was definitely clear. Everybody did. That, okay. was, that was the thing. Everybody would form a company at the end. But you had some of us. It's not like you're in your application essay. You already gave them, you know, a, a brief concept of what t- ended up being monitor. That wasn't. No. Oh okay. God, no, no. That okay. was much, much later. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. At the, at, the, at the time, I was really interested in natural language processing of um, massive amounts of electronic health records mm-hmm. for um, correlation um, analysis of, of between pathologies. Um, so. Um, so I, I spent that nine weeks there, and, and because it was on the NASA campus, I got to know um, a lot of people from NASA during the time, namely the, the CMO, Chief Medical Officer, um, Ralph Pellegra, who's, who's a dear friend, and used to take me flying every month <laughs> to no. renew his license, supposedly. But um, he, he became a friend, and I, got, and I met Pete Warden, who's the head of NASA Ames, and, and he invited me to come for a postdoc. And so I ended up doing that for the next two years. And um, working in medical devices that are supporting long-duration space missions. And, wait, wait, um, you you do this postdoc where? At NASA Ames. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, tell yeah. me. Oh no, go on. But you mentioned failures, Yehudit. I'm not. Yeah. I'm seeing a lot of success here. What was the yes. failure? <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, it, I'll get there. I'll okay. get there. It's it's coming. I mean. The failure was, you know, my early undergrad. I, I just, I, I didn't do so good. Okay. <laughs> you know? Calculus was a failure. I, well, it is, but then I went on to, like, you know, take honors and, and mathematics later on. Um, but I just want to stress that because I know how hard it is when you're in that position and you're just starting off in school and, like, you feel like you have these major failures and it's all over, you know? Like, I, I know how that feels. I just want people to know that it's not the end. And there's so much more ahead of you. Um, so, uh, yeah, the next failure. Um, so I, uh, I was at NASA for two years, had an incredible experience. Um, 
And I, 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 I took all this experience from my, uh, my, uh, the missions abroad, uh, including the, the earthquake in Haiti, which had just happened. Uh, I went there before the post stop and um, came back with this idea of, of ultrasound and what it can actually provide these communities in need uh, affordably without much power in a simple way, providing data that can be easily transmitted. And um, to support long-duration space missions as well, because the requirements for a community like those that I experienced in Haiti was quite similar to that of Mars, namely that there's nothing there. Um, and so I, I got my start in ultrasound with that and um, researched the use of uh, a silicon transducer called a CWIT, um, which is capacitance micro-machine ultrasonic transducers, um, engineered by the Curry-Yaku group at Stanford. And I, and I got to know Dr. Kuriaku, who's a wonderful person, and, uh, and got very inspired by his work and in the lab. And, and you know, I wrote some proposals and applied for grants, and that was really what I learned during the postdoc. But it, it was my introduction to ultrasound. And, um, and then I, I met my husband, I was at NASA, and um, started a family, and then decided to go on into residency. And um, it did not take me very long to realize that I was not in the right position at, at all. I, I had had all this exposure to this extraordinary technology, you know, and here I was taking orders from, from attendings that I really had no desire to emulate <laughs> you were um, or to learn not, from. Not the average resident in medical school. <laughs> yeah, in the program. And so and that and my son was five weeks old, and yes. this just did not add up to anything to happiness or anything inspiring. And so I left went home and cared for my son full time and really took that time to just digest everything that I'd been exposed to in the last few years and everything that had happened in my life and, and tried to figure out like, what is it that, that really drives me? What is it that um, is really important to me? And I think that that's that time that we have with our children when we're young, when, we're, when they're young is so vital because it's this time of reflection of who we are and who we want to be and who we want our children to be. And, um, so I, uh, I took full advantage of that time but for myself and my son. And, and in that, I went back to the ideas that I had when I, I lost my cousin who, while I was at NASA. She was a, a, a gynecologist and a breast cancer survivor who was very passionate about early detection of breast cancer because it was how she found her own. And um, so when I lost her at NASA, that was how I started getting my... Um, I started thinking about using ultrasound and early detection of breast cancer. And so when I was home with my son, it gave me this time to really think about that. Excuse me. And, and, and decide, you know, maybe there's something really big here that we're missing. Um, because I, I knew the conundrum that the mammography was, was causing uh, in, in clinical care. And so I, um, I, and so I got my start and I found a company and another ultrasound company was working in breast ultrasound. And I went on to, uh, worked for them for the next four and a half years as first their principal investigator and later their medical director. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a company that they just, they really had no idea what they were doing. It was a startup. And, um, and it was a great experience for me because I was also very inexperienced as a PI or, or a medical director. And it threw me into the, that position to take leadership, mm -hmm. to help straighten the company out, to help them give them something that was, that was viable. And they chose not to take my advice. Um, but it's, it was a huge learning experience for me to watch them fail. And, Working um, in that company, you're still in America. Mm -hmm. You're not in Israel yet, right? Yeah, that was the Bay Area. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And, um, and so when the company failed, I um, packed up my things, and it was a good time to take my son to to stroll. He was, um, he was just turning five, and, and we had the opportunity to go, and I knew it was the right time, and for a lot of reasons. So um, I'm glad you mentioned about the time, those early years that you spent with your son, because yeah. in many people's minds, you know, sometimes that's seen as a, as a setback, like we're giving up, but you're, you're really presenting it as a time where a woman can actually be very creative. And extremely, I, extremely. I, those years were pivotal. Mm. They were absolutely pivotal for me because when I was working for this company, I was actually at home. I was only working half time mm-hmm. and the other time it was remotely. And so I was in the home with my son the whole time. So it was a very, very creative time. And, but I want to stress that, you know, I left the residency program and then for the next four years, I, I searched for another residency program because that's yeah. what I wanted to do. I wanted to be in the Thought hospital. That was the answer. Right. right. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's why I went to medical school, right? I was going right. to be a doctor. I was going to serve. I was going to go to these third world countries and like join doctors without borders and like make save the world, you yes. know? And like, yes. and, and here I was failing at home, <laughs> quote unquote. Yeah, failing as, as a stay at home mom, mm-hmm. you know? And I felt like the biggest failure in the world. I was like, Hashem, where are you? Like, wh- how can you do this to me? You know, like you took mm-hmm. me through medical school. I know you were with me. I was davening to you every single exam with every cell of my neshama, you know, like, mm-hmm. and I know you were with me. I know that's why I succeeded. So where are you now? When it comes time for me, I actually fulfill and to give back to, to the patients that I've, I've learned about for so long. Like now is my chance and you're not giving it to me. Why? And so I was very depressed. I, I had a, a very deep postpartum depression mm-hmm. and that took me about six months to get out of um, naturally, you know, and it, I think what got me out of it was, was, was the creativity yes. starting to rest and just start thinking about, well, okay, what do I do now? You know, what skills has, has God given me now? What can I use? And that was the ultrasound. And that's how I found the company. It wasn't that I was like going to pursue breast ultrasound. It was like, I need a job. Mm-hmm. I need something to like keep my head above the water, you know? And but I, w- I was still, you know, chewing on these ideas, not knowing that it would ever become something big. Right. But, but working for this company is not what I wanted to do. Um, but they were paying me very well. And I was learning a lot. Right. It gave you um, an introduction to where you are now. Uh, right. Right. And working for a startup, which you are running now. So you learn from their mistakes. Uh, I would exactly. Assume. Exactly. But during that whole time, I'm applying for residencies right. all over, you know, and, and because I had this withdrawal, it looked really bad on my record. And I just, I didn't get looked at, uh, you know, and, and plus I'd had like, you know, I'd had the failures in chemistry and, and no, I'm serious. You know, like all these things, like they don't look good, you know, and, and my board exams weren't that great, you know, and I, I, when I'd lost my cousin, actually, I took the step to USMLE, um, just days after, after she died. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to rock this exam because that's what she wanted me to do. And instead, I walked into the exam, and I, it was actually, I lost three family members at one time. She oh. was one of them. Oh, my God. Um, and so it was, it was very traumatic for me, but I thought, you know what? This is what they want me to do. And I went into the exam, and I broke down. Oh. I, couldn't, I couldn't do it, and I failed the exam. So the first time I took the, the USMLE Step 2, I failed. And so that, like, really, if you have a failure on the USMLE, it's like, forget it. You know, like, you're not going to get any, any good interviews. 
But I went on to actually to interview at Harvard and, and Dartmouth, Cedar Sinai, some incredible programs. And I got very close. Um, the, the, the professor at Harvard was, you know, wrote me and said, you know, I can't wait to work with you and I'm really excited. And so I thought it was a done deal. And then at the last minute, a PhD student came in and took the position. And um, this just happened over and over again. And it was like Hashem was saying, listen. Uh-huh. What is he saying? Tell me. He's saying, you know, like, you got what it takes. You're here. You're at Harvard. Like, you, they want you. But I want you somewhere else. Uh-huh. And so this isn't, and, but I didn't see it at the time. You know, it was just like failure after failure. Every year I would travel all over the country and I would interview at all these different programs. And it was like, God, what's going on? Right. <laughs> I'm failing. I'm, I'm failing. So, I'm so close, but I'm not achieving it. What's happening here? Yeah. And all this time I'm continuing to do, continuing to do research and learn and explore ultrasound more and more and get to know global scientists in ultrasound and attend conferences and, you know, read and write. And, and, and so it, it didn't all come together so much later. So, you know, we had the opportunity to move to Eritus Roll and uh, I, I, the company failed. And I, I thought, you know what? All those ideas that I had, they didn't even want to listen to. I'm going to take them and make something of them. Mm-hmm. And so I did. And I filed a patent and I, um, I joined Mass Challenge, which happened to be three minutes from my doorstep of the apartment that I randomly chose before I had any idea of Mass Challenge. And, um, and I, I started in that accelerator and um, a few months went by and randomly applied for the WeWork Award, not really thinking much of it or not really knowing entirely what it was. And, uh-huh. um, and uh, you know, did a little 10-minute video and, and sent it in, forgot about it, and went on to make it as a semifinal and finalist, and, and then I, I took first prize. Um, and, and that's when, you know, the moment before I got on the stage, it, it all hit me. It was like, okay, now wow. Now saw the bigger picture. <laughs> I saw the bigger picture and I was like, okay, Hashem, maybe this is why, you know, maybe it wasn't failures. Maybe it was just, you wanted me to get this experience to do what I'm doing now. Because now I have, you know, six, seven years experience at ultrasound research. I have this engineering background that I didn't really know what to do with. And, and I have, I have an international perspective on medicine and, and how I can impact communities all over the world. And the loss of my cousin and, and the potential to make huge impact in saving lives, not just one at a time, but thousands at a time. And so I went on stage with all that in my heart. And um, so, yes, it was an emotional appeal, but it was very genuine, and it, it remains so. And <clears throat> I was actually thinking about something. It's, it's called the Creator Award. And it just hit me that, you know, it really isn't, it's an award for my creator (laughs) because, because it's, it's my creator who made it all happen. You know, I've, I've really been a clean, so it's the creator award. (laughs) Right. You're just the vessel. He's been, he's been pushing you to get to this point all along and you're the, yeah, because if I'd been running the show, I I forget it. Right. Right. Totally. That's such a lesson for all of us. Right. Like we think, (laughs) we, we think we're running the show and we want it one way, but the creator of the world who knows what's best for us is obviously once sometimes something else. You already talked about the conundrum. You mentioned the conundrum in mammography. Okay. So, what are the problems in breast cancer detection 
Sure. Um, uh, and, and, the, and the available technology that we've had up to this point that, that Monitor, your product, is trying to address. Yeah, great. Um, so the first mammogram was, was performed in 1913. And it's, it's pretty amazing that over 100 years later, it's still how we're finding breast cancer today. And, um, but at, at the same time, before I, I get into too much detail, I, I need to stress um, that we are very much a partner with mammography, okay? Uh-huh. That mammography saves lives. And, you know, maybe somewhere down the road, we'll prove that there's a better solution. Mm-hmm. But for now, it is the best thing that we have. And so I strongly encourage every woman to get their mammogram and to know their risk and, and to talk to their doctors about their potential risk. Because being aware of, of your family history and your potential risk can save your life. Early detection is the best way to increase your level of survival for breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And that's what we really want to exploit. And so there are problems with mammography, though, and that's what we're trying to address. But we are a partner with mammography. It plays an integral role currently in, in the effectiveness of our device, and I'll explain how. So there's four main problems with mammography that we're hoping to address. And the first is, is, is probably the most important, and that's just that we're not finding breast cancer early enough. Okay. Um, there's 260,000 cases of invasive breast cancer. That's, that's cancer that's left the capsule of the tumor and starting to invade the, the breast, potentially the tissues underneath, going to the lymph nodes and to the body. Um, not always, but in, in, in a large percentage it does happen. And... Um, so there's 260,000 of these cases in the United States alone that are being diagnosed. Only 60,000 cases of the stage zero cancers, which where there's, you know, at least uh, above a 95% survival rate when it's caught at stage zero. And what's the survival so, rate after? What, what does it drop to? Well, it depends on which stage you're talking about. Mm. You know, if you're going up to stage four, stage four is, is as low as 23. Some even say as low as 16% survival rate for the next five years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and then the other stages, according to the extent of the spread of the tumor in the breast, the lymph nodes, the body, then the, the survival rate is, is uh, accordingly uh, goes down. So, um, so, so we're only catching a very small percentage in that early stage. That's problem number one. I mean, it's not a very, very small percentage. It's effective. It's still our, our best way of finding breast cancer. I want to okay. stress that. Mm-hmm. But it's not good enough. It should be the other way around. It should be that we're catching 60,000 cases of invasive cancer mm. and 260,000 cases is at stage zero. But that's not what's happening. Mm. So we want to reverse those numbers. Gotcha. And, and so that's, that's the first problem. The next problem is the problem of breast density, which has come to light in the last you know, 10, 15 years. That a woman's, excuse me, a woman's breast density, um, if she has extremely dense breast, as 40 to 50% of women in the target population for mammography, that is about 40 or 50, have dense breasts, that means they cannot rely upon mammography alone and they must get a breast ultrasound afterward. And they're finding more and more that the whole breast ultrasound after a mammogram is even more informative than just the local ultrasound that a woman typically gets. So um, that's, the, that's the next problem, is this problem that, that a very large percentage, you know, up to 50% of these women um, can't even depend on mammography. Um, and um, the next problem is high-risk women. So there's currently 3.5 million uh, women in the United States who have had or have breast cancer. And so they're automatically high risk for reoccurrence. Mm-hmm. And um, that combined with women, which we don't actually have a number for, an accurate number for the number of high risk women there are 
or high risk because of their genetics. Right. Um, I, have, I recently had the um, executive director of Sharesharit sharing some numbers with us about, you know. Oh, she's a good friend. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very nice. Beautiful. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And we discussed the, the BRCA gene mutation and, you know, our, our communities, our Ashkenazi communities being at a higher risk and all that. So it's, it's a very terrifying state for these women. I, I've spoken to many of them. And if they're lucky, they, they get an MRI every six months. Mm-hmm. And, but what happens between those MRIs is terrifying. Why? Because women Why? live in fear. Well, they live in fear. Right. Uh, this, this state of not knowing, you know, and they're palpating their breasts. They're feeling things. They're terrified. They can't, you know, they might go in for an ultrasound, might get a whole bunch of unnecessary biopsies. They're, they're so scared that 20,000 of them a year are removing their breasts unnecessarily without any pathology in their breasts every year in the United States. 20,000 women. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. When there's nothing wrong. And it's just, it's just unnecessary, you know. And, and we hope that we can provide these women the reassurance that we're monitoring them. We're watching their breasts. And so the mo- moment we see a change, they can have it checked out. And... Um, no, I'll get into more detail of how that works in a second. And and the other problem, the last problem that, that, that we hope to 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 somewhat alleviate is is the problem of, of uh, overdiagnosis. So one in three mammograms is resulting in a false positive. Um, a lot due to this um, this cancer called ductal carcinoma in situ, which is comprises twenty percent of all breast cancers. And unfortunately, or fortunately, thirty percent of these breast cancers um, will become invasive. And 70% of them will not. They'll remain indolent in the breast. And, but unfortunately, because we can only irradiate a woman's breast once a year with mammography, when we see that mass on a mammogram, we have to take it out because of, there's still a 30% risk that that beca- can become an invasive cancer. Uh-huh. And so better to take it out at stage zero, you know, when she has a, a 95% survival rate, than to wait. But unfortunately, what this translates to is 50,000 women a year in the United States are having surgery and irradiation unnecessarily. Wow. Yeah. Completely unnecessary. So our hope, and this will come later on, um, our hope is that by monitoring the mass, that we can say, yep, there's change, or no, there's not change. Let's continue to monitor until we see change. And um, so... The way it works is it's a whole breast ultrasound device that, okay. that mimics cl- clinical quality device that we, were, we want to bring to the home. And a woman is notified on her app uh, the, that works with the device or her tablet mm-hmm. that it's the appropriate time to perform her monthly scan. And she doesn't see any images. She's not responsible for any, any clinical decisions or anything. She just, she just puts the device on her breast and... It, it does a complete scan of, of her breast and her axilla. And then um, every month she performs the scan. And we, we use a software that, that has taken 20 years to develop and has FDA approval to make an assessment of the entire breast um, over time. And when we see a change in the breast anywhere, we alert the user. And then with the click of a button um, on the app, they can send a secure link to their physician who has immediate access to historical images of that particular area of the breast. Uh, so, because the software so, has stored all the images throughout all the monthly checkups. Yes. And so when you know what area of the breast is 
in question can collect all of those images from that area over time. And the physician can make their next decision for management, not based upon risk, but based upon proven need. And the, the, the hope is that we can catch stage zero cancer and differentiate it also eventually to differentiate it from stage zero cancer that does not need to be removed, like the DCIS. So not only and, are we empowering women, but we're also empowering the physicians to be able to make better decisions for their patients. That's really what this is. Right now, this is a clinical device in the home. Right. This, is, this is something to help the physician. Are we empowering women? Absolutely. And just, you mentioned the software, you mentioned it's been developed um, over 20 years. Obviously, you're not the developer of that specific mm -hmm. software, right? Right. Correct. Okay. And I also want to add that we're still in negotiations, um, but they're very, we have a very special connection uh, with, with the family of the engineer who, who died in 2014. So he, um, without knowing... <laughs> Uh, anything about this gentleman, I, I was very interested in software and was um, going to write uh, some papers on, on its development and, and some very interesting clinical results that came out of its development. And um, I later found out, like, after I left the other company and uh, considered, you know, what, what we were going to use for detection, I, I, I got in touch with the family and, and found out that this engineer was uh, an Orthodox Jew Oh, wow. Had a, came from Russia, um, was a very talented programmer, and had a dream to actually use the software exactly how we're using it <laughs> for early detection at, in, in the home. And um, he also had a dream to finish his life up in Israel. And so I, I, I feel like we're somehow, you know, fulfilling his dreams. He, he before his death, he, he raised $3 million to build a uh, Chabad house in La Costa, San Diego. And, oh my gosh. Um, yeah. And so it's, it was really just amazing to find us out um, <laughs> about this, this family after so many years of, of knowing about this software and, and wanting to do something really wonderful with it. <laughs> That's such a um, story. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, it's just one example of the extraordinary Heshkafa Pratitz uh, involved in this company. It's been a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I could tell. <laughs> You've won the award. You have the substantial amount of money to get you going. What is happening now? What are you allocating the funds towards? Have you built a team? Tell us what it's like now as a startup. So we have a secondary investor who is, is Mama Shitsadik. He's, he's uh, a balichuva. And uh, we share very similar goals in terms of what we'd like to do with our profit. <laughs> God willing. Mm -hmm. uh, which is very exciting. And so we're using those funds to go forward with filing non-provisional patents oh, to secure our, our IP. That's, that's our primary activity right now. And, and once we have that, we can, we'll use those patents to go forward with photo, prototype iteration um, mm -hmm. to push forward into clinical study. And those prototypes, they're going to be manufactured in Israel, I gather? Oh, yeah, for sure. Everything. Uh-huh. So when we're looking at a timeline, Yehudit, when do, you, do we foresee this actually being on the market, accessible to people? Are we looking at a three- to five-year timeline? Are we looking more than that? I, I, hopefully not more than that. I wouldn't think so. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's, it's, hard to, it's hard to say. You know, it's, you really don't know. But three to five years is generally what it takes for a medical device. What we're doing is, is really complicated, though. And it takes 
it takes some pretty big minds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So but Hashem is, is providing them to us. So it's, it's really exciting. So does that mean that you have other people on your team helping you out? Yeah. Yes. Extraordinary oh, people. Very nice. How many are you all together? <laughs> We're still small, but the, the minds that I have. Only the best. But all of us are, are true leaders. Uh, I have my co-founder who was uh, CEO of a, a very successful medical device company who saw it through R&D and through FDA, CEA, mark approval and massive distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, she's, she's my main partner in crime. I have a, another engineer that uh, was CEO of uh, another breast ultrasound company for 14 years um, who has extensive experience in and and all with all the big players and is really he's also a balachuva um and just an extraordinary person and just really honored to work with both of these individuals and they're just really fun people too so it's it's uh it's really brutal. and i do have to add to the whole ashkaha practice divine providence in all of this that just the fact that you were able to move to Israel, which we know is, you know, a tech, a, an incubator for innovation and technology. I mean, it's the right setting for you to be. So not only had you accumulated, accumulated all those years of network, of a solid network of people and colleagues and experience, but then now you're in the land of Israel where you are able to really tap into the minds and just the environment, right? Oh, it's extraordinary. I've been chewing on this idea actually lately, and it, I think it really comes back to this, this Naseh Vanishma. Mm, tell us. You know, we, we will do, and then we will hear, then we'll understand. Mm. And, and in that is implicit failure. Do you, you're you know, saying that, that in, within the Jewish people, we have that. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, it goes back to our origins Beautiful. as a people. Yes. That, I, you know, we, we don't quite understand everything, but we're just going to do. We're good. And we're going to figure it out. We're going to go for it. But, but with, within that, within that is implicit failure. Mm-hmm. Because you don't, if you don't understand something completely and you start it, you're going to fail. You're going to, inevitably. You're going to so fail. So I, what's, <laughs> what's, what's important here is that for us, it's not failure. It's part of our process. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's expressed in so many levels in the society that, we don't really worry about that failure or that process, if you will. We just do. We just jump in full force. Well, because if we see it from God's vantage point, it's not failure. From Video. God's vantage point, it's the journey that you're supposed to be on. It's the perfect. Exactly. We exactly. call it a failure, but now we're understanding from what you're saying that really it's, the, it's God's perspective, the way we have to appreciate it. And that's why it's the creator's award. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, and another thing that I want to stress is that what I'm hearing throughout this conversation is that also being an observant Jewish woman has not been an obstacle or a hindrance, but rather I see that that's just been a part and you've I've encountered beautiful partnerships with people with your same, you know, religious inclinations as well as probably colleagues who don't have them. But yet I don't sense from you that it's ever been a challenge, a challenging part of your journey. Is that fair to say? Oh, for sure not. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nice. Um, I well, debunk that myth right there, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think the most challenging part is just with my own family. You know, I come from a family of cowboys and ranchers, and so 
you know, the fact that I, I tape the light shut in the fridge when I come home, you know, and that I do all these funky things to the stove and I have my own Calum and everything, you know, they think I'm a freak, you know. Um, <laughs> I get you. Yeah. Um, and, and my mom, you know, she's a devout Christian. Oh, she and, is. But she's living yeah. with you. How, what a wonderful bracha that you were able to bring her with you to Eretz Israel. Well, don't don't hold your nope. breath. We're we're still working on it. It's uh-huh. a complicated thing to achieve oh. in our ancestral. So, okay. but we're we're davening that uh, she she be granted the permanent residency. Oh, so she's her. not permanent right now. I mm-hmm. see. I see. Mm-hmm. I see. But you know, it's it's all it's part of Kedus Yitzchak. You know, mm-hmm. we, we put everything up to Hashem and say whatever is your will, I will do. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's part mm-hmm. of the process, and she has that bitachon to to be able to also be in that space. Because she's a very faithful woman, and That's I actually, amazing. I, I attribute my the, the the level of faith that I have to my mom because the way she raised me, and she raised me knowing that whatever happens is God's will and it's good. Wow. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So beautiful. So Yehuda, let's wrap it up with um, JLP fill in the blanks. And this is the way I get, okay. I coronate, <laughs> your, I coronate all my guests um, with these statements and you're just going to fill them out for me with the first thing that comes to man, mind. Okay. 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 All right. I'm Yehuda Abrams and I feel most spiritual when? When I am at the Kadosh Kadoshim. Here in Yerushalayim, there's like no other place or experience for me in the world. That is when I am whole. And by that you mean on the underground tunnels of the Kotel, the ones that are closest? I, I, yeah, it's not That's the actual Kedosh Kedoshim, obviously, right. but there's a place where you can daven in right. to get as close as, as, is, close. as, as halachically you know, permissible. Yeah. yeah, I have. I haven't had the chance to actually be there. God willing. Oh my gosh! If you come husband, here, yeah, call me and I'll take you there. No, we're going. We're going. My husband <laughs> went um, last year, and he was like, trans, you know, he the way he describes it, it's like. So yeah, God willing, we'll make that happen soon. All right. My favorite mitzvah, or one that I connect with the most, is. Mmm, Cholim. Really? <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very nice. Beautiful. My yeah. fondest, sweetest Jewish memory is? Mm. Oh, this is tough. Um, watching my two-year-old son, mm-hmm. though he couldn't speak very well, um, watching him say Kaddish perfectly three times a day with me for uh, Reuben Cohen who was a surrogate father to me, who lived across the street from me mm. and when I was growing up, and mm. who was very instrumental in my conversion. So did your son ever get to meet Mr. Cohen? Yeah, for oh, sure. Oh, how yeah. nice. How yeah. beautiful. Yeah. How beautiful. I mean, beautiful for Mr. Cohen also to have had that experience to see you be a mother and, you know, mm-hmm. and probably mm-hmm. have uh, like a grandchild of his own. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How he was nice. 102 when he died. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> Something I wished I had learned about Judaism growing up is? <laughs> Everything? Well, I mean, you know, I, I started studying Judaism when I was 13, uh-huh. you know, um, so... Something that I wish I would have learned about Judaism. But still, even you know, if you, if sometimes if we look back, hmm. you know, we start gaining a different appreciation now in our adult life that maybe we wished 
maybe we wish we had gotten? That's a really tough one because I, I think that everything that I learned when I learned it was really a, such a bracha and was just part of my pathway yeah. to my conversion in Eretz Yisrael. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At what age did that happen, Yehudit? You were a young adult, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I started studying when I was 13 and I moved to Eretz Yisrael when I was 17. Uh-huh. And converted when I was 19. Oh, okay. So you, it's, it was very early on in your life. Yeah. When I give tzedakah, I like to give to? There's a woman who had davened for me for 25 years from my return to Eretz Yisrael. So when I was, I was 19, I left and went back to the States for college because I couldn't get my Hebrew up to college level. Mm-hmm. And she davened for me every single day for 25 years. And she today, she stands in the, the shuk at Machnihuda and she collects tzedakah that goes to a, a wonderful place, the community up in Spat, mm-hmm. which is very dear to me because that's where I converted and that's where I, I learned. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's where my, my tzedakah goes. And I'm hoping my, my dream, my ultimate dream for tzedakah is to build a yeshiva in Spat for oh. the school where I originally studied. Oh, wow. That's to beautiful. To build a proper building. Yeah, that's my dream. And, and also the dream of my investor. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Finally, I'm Yehudit Abrams, and today I'm most grateful for. Wow. Um, I'd say my mom. Oh. Um, my mom, because I wouldn't be who I am today if I didn't have her support. And I wouldn't be here if I didn't have her support. And I certainly would not be doing this interview if she wasn't watching my son right now. <laughs> there you go. It's not just spiritual support, it's practical support. <laughs> and yeah, and that's what it's all about. And and so I owe so much to that woman. Amazing. So, yeah. How beautiful. May you have many, many long and healthy years together to have nachas from your son and her grandchild. Thank you so much. Yehudit, much atzlacha on her. Keep us updated. How do we how do we stay updated on what's going on with the product? Well, like I said, I mean, our timeline's pretty spread out. So mm-hmm. you're not going to see any huge updates uh, for a while. Uh, but if you want, we, eventually we're going to start posting to the Monitor Facebook page, uh, M-O-N-I-T-H-E-R. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if you want to contact me, you're more than welcome to do so at Yehudit, Y-E-H-U-D-I-T, at Monit, M-O-N-I-T, her, H-E-R dot. Com. And uh, I just will put a word out there. I am beginning to look for a shittle. So, um, <gasps> well, that's good that to mind. know. Smart <laughs> yeah. to put it out there. I love it. Well, Might as well. Might as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, listen, Hashem has helped you in so many ways. I have no doubt that uh, he's going to help in this on this front as well. Yeah, I honey, agree. Thank you so much for this beautiful interview. Thank you for the wonderful work that you're doing. I wish you much bracha. Amen. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks to Yehudit Abrams for stopping by. Was she great or what? Are you getting the sense that Jewish women are totally changing the world, each in their own unique way? I hope that through these interviews, you get the picture of how unique each and every one of you listeners out there is and get tremendous inspiration for your own lives from hearing how other Jewish women are transforming the world for good. So that was Yehudit Abrams for you. Again, the company and product is called Monit Her, and hopefully we will have access to it in the market before we know it. In the meantime, if you're interested in being in touch with Yehudit or keep updated with Monit her, you can follow at Monitor on Facebook or reach her at Yehudit at Monitor.com. And remember, any shidduch ideas, she did say she's looking for this fantastic woman. You never know. Let us know. That's it for today, ladies. Have a beautiful week. 
Thanks for listening to Jewish Latin Princess Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating, and share the podcast with the Jewish women you love. To access today's show notes, ask Yael a question, or suggest a uniquely talented Jewish woman to be featured on the show, visit JewishLatinPrincess.com.